Hello and welcome back to Eldritch Girl. And I'm afraid my voice is still a little bit scratchy, so apologies if I cough in the middle of it. Um, but today we've got Alessandra Pino, also known as Ali. Um, and it's slightly different because um, Ali is working on a gothic cookbook, which is a co-written endeavour with, with Ella Buchan. So we're going to instead have a different form of author interview today. Um, Ali, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I would. Thank you so much for having me on here. I'm so honoured. Um, yeah, my name is Alessandra or Ali, and I'm actually in the process of finishing a PhD at the University of Westminster, um, and I can't wait. So that should be before the end of the year, and that's on food in the Gothic. And I'm also a co-author of a Gothic cookbook, as you mentioned, with my friend and food journalist Ella Bakken. Um, we're crowdfunding the project uh, through Unbound, so perhaps we can give details at the end in case anyone would like to support or can spread the word to other Gothic literature enthusiasts. Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> we have a little discount code as well. Um, so we'll share all of that. Um, yes, so a Gothic cookbook um, is a really new and exciting project. There'll be 13 chapters and each chapter will have a look at a different Gothic novel and what meals there are in the text and how food is used. So the idea behind a Gothic cookbook is that food has a lot more to offer than just being a prop or an embellishment, but it actually is able to develop its own story and can give the reader a strong insight into characters and the plot. Um, so each chapter will have recipes inspired by the meals or ingredients or food items mentioned in the novels. And we have Dracula, Frankenstein, Jane Eyre, Beloved, all of the big Gothic novels and also perhaps lesser known ones. Um, so, you know, our choice is kind of based on, on various factors also to do with mainly you know, what kind of food there is and does it exemplify this idea of Gothic food. Um, so you can see for yourselves on the Unbound website as well, because there are some sample chapters to look at and some sample recipes. And illustrator Lee Henry has created some really wonderful drawings, um, which you can also see on the website. And so, yeah, so that's what I've been doing, really. And it kind of ties into my PhD in the sense that through my PhD, I've been looking at food from a different angle. So food as a symbol but like as a, as a dangerous one so what what kind of um, signals it can give us societally to show us that things are not going very well so it's kind of an idea of food that's a little bit different because we normally see food as being quite a joyous occasion of uh, communicating our feelings of you know with our loved ones around the table but it's not always like this as we know <laughs> yeah <laughs> some interesting um meals in the crows <laughs> so what recipe are you working on right at the moment with the cookbook oh so I've been actually focusing on Jane Eyre researching um some recipes by Hannah Glass who is an 18th century English cookery writer and she wrote um, a book called The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Easy and it was published in 1747. So when we look at the recipes that we need to develop um, and um, it, you know for the for the book purposes we try and and keep it kind of in a similar time frame or at least how you know it could possibly have been 
at that time because obviously in the novel itself there aren't any recipes so you know everything is just a very vague guideline um, we want to try and make it as authentic as possible so with Jane Eyre for example um, though Hannah Glass's recipe has 36 eggs in it we will not be using 36 eggs <laughs> um, we'll be using three eggs um, or, or six eggs, depending on how many people it's for. So uh, just things like that, like adapting the recipe to our current times is also important. Um, so yes, yeah, so it's, it's really great to kind of take a piece of, of writing from the novel and, um, and choose, you know, the recipe that we want to develop. And one of these is a seed cake. And there's actually a, a nice passage, if you, if you want, I can read it um, in Jane Eyre, where they, where they talk about this cake. Go for it. Okay, so this passage, this passage I'm going to read uh, comes just after Jane has been called out by the headmaster as a liar and Jane is forced to stand on a stool without food or water. Let her stand half an hour longer on that stool and let no one speak to her during the remainder of the day. Poor Jane. So when she's finally permitted to come off her throne of shame, she dissolves into tears and she finds herself befriended by the angelic Helen Burns. And then the two girls are invited into the quarters of the really kind teacher, Mrs. Miss Temple. So she warms them by the fire and feeds their little bodies and spirits with toast, tea and a fragrant seed cake. Um, and this is the passage. So having invited Helen and me to approach the table and placed before each of us a cup of tea with one delicious but thin morsel of toast, she got up, unlocked a drawer and taking from it a parcel wrapped in paper disclosed presently to our eyes a good-sized seed cake. I meant to give each of you some of this to take with you, she said, but as there's so little toast, you must have it now. And she proceeded to cut slices with a generous hand. We feasted that evening as on nectar and ambrosia, and not the least delight of the entertainment was the smile of gratification with which our hostess regarded us as we satisfied our famished appetites on the delicate fare she liberally supplied. So, so that's from Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. And um, it's just one of, one of the 30 novels that we have in a Gothic cookbook that I'm really proud of. Uh, you're starting to develop that recipe as something that anyone can create and make. So how is it set out in the cookbook? Do you have the recipe alongside the extract and then like some commentary on it? Or how, did, how does that work in the book itself? So in the book, we'll have an essay that comes before five recipes, five to six recipes for each novel. And in the essay, we'll explain how food functions in that particular text as Gothic food um, and, you know, the meaning of that. So and food acting as a symbol and what it means for that particular text. And then we'll have, yes, five to six recipes for each each chapter. Oh, OK. Is that divided between sort of, you know, um, savoury and sweet or... Yes, it depends because some novels are actually have have more sweet recipes than other novels. So, for example, Beloved is very much a novel that has lots of sugary um, recipes in it. Um, obviously, it's um, sugar is quite central to the novel. And then there are others that are more savoury. Like I would say Dracula is quite a savoury <laughs> rather than sweet. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I was just trying to think of, I don't think there's a lot of dessert in Dracula, is there? <laughs> <laughs> it's very much like um, all the, the paprika chicken and yes. the goulash and stuff. That we have, yes, paprika yeah. Um Yes, yeah, absolutely, yes. A bit meatier. 
<laughs> and then other chapters and other chapters will be more uh, focused on there'll always be vegetarian options by the way actually yeah. Ella's vegetarian so um yes so for sure there'll be there'll be a good mixture but definitely always vegetarian options for those who don't eat meat oh that's really interesting I mean Frankenstein I suppose already would have vegetarian yes. in it because isn't the creature yes vegetarian yes so um, there's an acorn bread and that you know this was the interesting thing when I reread Frankenstein I actually realized that the creature was vegetarian with the very moving passage in it where he wants to leave the meat for the humans because he doesn't feel worthy of it and that really struck me because I hadn't really noticed that previously um, I only noticed it when I was looking for the food um, food references in it so I thought that was quite interesting but that's quite central to the novel that the humanity versus monstrosity is signaled here by food um, meat versus non you know vegetables or um, acorns in his case um, so yeah that was really interesting so we'll have um, mainly vegetarian recipes for that chapter for example yeah that's fascinating. I love that. Yeah, I love that you can get a lot more out of it if you're looking for particular things, especially looking through lenses of food and that kind of, yeah, just really interesting concept. How did you come up with the concept to do a cookbook based on all of the gothic novels? Yes, I, I think, well, the main idea was kind of obviously I, I do food and gothic food for my PhD, um, but it was my birthday and Ella was looking for a present for me and she sent me a big Edgar Allan Poe really beautifully bound book and I said this is so this is so beautiful and she said look I was actually looking for um, something which combined the gothic with food because I know that's what you're studying and that's what you're researching on but I couldn't find anything and I said well why don't we write one <laughs> so that's literally how it started oh, perfect. Um, it was on my birthday <laughs> And, um, and we said, no, because there isn't really a Gothic cookbook. Because, yes, food in the Gothic isn't something that people normally think, oh, that goes together. But actually, it does, because food can be quite creepy in ways that we, um, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't think, because we don't expect it to be. So then suddenly, when certain things are presented in a certain way, and um, we realise then the, the significance of it, and perhaps it's more a subconscious, subconscious realization. So that's what's interesting about it. I think it's not something that leaps to the eye immediately, but it kind of creeps in very subtly. And I find that really good to read on a second, maybe third reading when you're looking for food. In fact, lots of people say to me, now I notice food everywhere and I'd never noticed it before. But since you've been writing this book, <laughs> um, you know, every, every story that I read, you know, I look, look out for food now. <laughs> I'm not, I, I didn't at all until I heard your talk with Romancing the Gothic about food in horror films and sort of that the idea of, you know, the, the family breaking down because if you if you see a, a takeaway, yes. right, they're not they're not being a proper family in the sense yeah. they're not gathering around the table and they don't have. So if, if pizza is around, then something bad is going to happen because like that's, oh, that's a sign of a family fractured or like, you know, it's not the ideal. Yeah. Pizza equals danger, you know? Yeah. Pizza equals normally a single parent family. Uh, it's incredible. It's like these food signals then become a language. So it's like a code. You see someone just putting a pizza on the table. The kids are grabbing the pizza. You know that person is 
a single parent, a struggling single mother, you know, normally in a horror film and something bad is about to happen. Um, and there are so many different variants of this. I think The House of the Devil um, is a film, I think from a couple of years ago. And again, you know, this association between the pizza and the devil and the pizza to lure in young people and then uh, let the devil in. So, you know, pizza is uh, has become an interesting symbol and it, you know, it wasn't like that before. So it's quite, it's really good to kind of analyze these more recent films and, and books that use food in this way. And, um, and trying to figure out why food is being used like this, you know, what is, what is going on? Why, why is food being used to express this anxiety that then translates into these evil manifestations or supernatural manifestations? You know, what does it all mean? Um, I think there's a lot of anxiety as well around, the, especially in America, I think, around like the food industry and where the food is coming from and mm -hmm. processed food and what's in processed food and that all of that kind of stuff. And I think in the UK to an extent as well, there was that, you know, the, the whole kind of GMO scare and like, <laughs> like all the conspiracy theories about genetically modified crops and all that kind of thing. And it comes down to trust and it comes down to, you know, can we trust what we're eating? Is what we're eating what we think we're eating? You know, is it what it says on the label? Is it something different? I think these these are all things that we we automatically when we pick something up in a supermarket, we just trust what's on the what's on the box. And but can we because we've been it's been proven time and time again that actually things are not as simple as that. And, um, and often we don't know what goes on behind the scenes. And this not going on, not not knowing what goes on behind the scenes is very much what we want to transmit through this cookbook. You know, the, mm. the recipes will be wholesome, lovely, traditional recipes that we can all make in the comfort of our own homes. There's no creepy stuff going on there. But the idea behind, you know, this um, this food in horror and gothic food is this, is that, you know, normally we can't always trust what we see and it's not as simple as just serving something and everyone being happy about it. What goes on in the kitchen behind closed doors is something that perhaps people that are eating that food have no idea about. And so, and we see glimpses of this in horror films and sometimes, often I have to say things that are microwavable or sugar or there is, you know, or pizza, as we've said, a specific, specifically really connected to, to evil. Um, so yeah, maybe people can look out for that. It's interesting now, because when I say this, then people will spot this more and more in films and you know things that they haven't noticed before. Yeah, and I think it's, I mean, you, it's, I was thinking about horror films where that's um, specifically linked to cannibalism mm. and like the, the accidental, I was thinking about the hatching that we watched. Oh. <laughs> don't want to spoil that for anyone but like <laughs> um the whole idea of what's going on in a in a butcher's shop that you don't know about like what's no. in your pies what like Sweeney Todd sort of thing and what's in your sausages and yeah or who <laughs> indeed yeah. um I was thinking about um those kinds of dystopian grindhouse films where you've got the diners that feed customers to other customers and mm. beef patties and that sort of thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, I was just um, thinking about that then. <laughs> um, and I, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you buy a pie in a shop and you don't know what's in it really, but, um, but you still feel full, 
you still perhaps share it with a friend and feel happy after that interaction and yes. you can suggest <laughs> it no problem you know the meat that we have we we assume it's beef but sometimes we've seen that by accident it has been another type of maybe horse meat or some other meat I was just thinking about the horse meat yeah. as well yeah yeah, yeah. so nothing bad like ultimately <laughs> sometimes I feel like it's in our minds you know what's mm. bad you know we wouldn't eat a pie that's made of any other meat than what we are expecting it to be perhaps chicken or beef but really if we do then what because we've still eaten it and perhaps it hasn't even tasted any different with you know some gravy on it so really it's about what we think and imagine imagination is more important you know in that case I think and yeah so things are not what they seem sometimes even with food but yeah it's more about what it represents culturally and a pie is a pie and it's encased and it's kind of covered and I think that's a good symbol for what we eat and culturally how we feel when we eat so you know it's meant to be something nice it's meant to be something pleasant and an opportunity to to relax as well you know it's like a it's like a pause now in a, a break in our day um and it's not seen so much as it has to be nutritious it's more like we're having a break now and often we eat having a break and watching something on tv so it's a double break or we and then we're doing something else on top maybe looking at our laptops as well so we combining all these relaxing moments together and um and it becomes just an interruption of our day and then we get on with other things so it's you know the function of food which was a moment of like bonding with other people very often now it's we're quite alone when we when we eat as well so we see that as well a lot in films it has to be something quick or fast um yeah that's really interesting i was just thinking about how um food is as kind of um a backdrop for important dialogue or for scenes or something like that where it's basically reduced to um I guess uh what's like the theater term is like just business isn't it it's just like yeah. to do with your hands while mm-hmm. like how do you get two characters to have a conversation about something well you could put them in a coffee shop and that's like a yeah a kind of coffee and and cake or something or you have you know even in a cinema or you know that they'll be eating snacks or they'll be watching the television potentially with some sort of food item or yeah Yeah. yeah, it's um it's it's a it's a way of a way of getting something to do in that situation and then like you can tell a lot about characters by whether they like sweet or savory things or whether they're whether they're vegetarian, whether they're vegan, whether they, you know, whether that impacts how they interact with people yeah. in that scene or... And whether they want to make a statement through what... Because often someone who's vegan or vegetarian will want to distinguish themselves from their friends and they make a point of saying, I'm not going to eat that because I'm, you know, mm. I'm vegan. So what does that mean as well from a political standpoint? And yes, you're right, people go to the cinema, perhaps they have food... And it's nearly as a prop in that case, you know, you have popcorn, you're having a good time. So you have, but what if there's an eye in the popcorn? (laughs) You know, that thing that you're reaching into a bag of popcorn and then you're taking out something like an eye 
or there's a tooth in your soup, you know, all these things, they're meant to be disquieting and like create a sense of unpleasantness. Yes. This is often done through food because food is something that is outside of us, but we put it, we trust it enough to place it inside of us and to make it essentially become part of us. And that's something we do nearly automatically now, but it's quite a weird process if you think about it and you break it down. Um, the amount of trust that we put in something, you wouldn't put anything from, you know, externally into, into your mouth. And it, you do with food, even though it's prepared by people that you don't necessarily know. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, that distance between where your food comes from and then getting to you and like you don't have, you know, it's not like where it's a farm and you're kind of producing the food yourself. You, you've hand reared the animals, you, you've, re yeah. you've, you've hand grown the crops, you know, exactly how it was grown or you know and then you sell it at market and people know you and they know your yes. you know, it's not like that anymore like there's all of this distance in the food chain and yeah. people just don't know how things are grown or how no. things are made or they and don't people, know people personally anymore no. and people don't have time to find yeah. out they have to trust the system and actually Sydney Mintz who wrote Sweetness and Power talks about this distance between sites of production and then sites where food that food is sold and there's a kind of there's such a separation between the two and it no, normally obviously coincides that the sites of production are in the global south and then we have you know the west where that food arrives and there is such a distance between those two poles that he calls it a mystery it becomes a mystery and we just trust that void there's nothing there and the people who make that food they don't exist because if you could envision what they went through when producing that and in, in what manner, it would probably be quite difficult to eat what they produce and consume it in our everyday fast lives that we lead, where we don't really, we don't really have time to think about that. Um, so, and in that kind of void is the, the gothicness of food, I think, and is the darkness of food as well, um, yes. What do you, I mean, you have um, you have two short stories that are coming out in two anthologies, so fiction as well. Do you find yourself um, consciously playing with food in those sorts of ways in your writing, or do you find yourself um, writing about um, other kinds of themes? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I don't really, actually, in these two short stories, there isn't any food. Um, I don't tend to purposefully put food in my stories I don't know why but it might be that the background is you know in in a restaurant or somewhere where food is produced and I work for a long time in a restaurant so it's kind of a second home to me in that sense so I would of, I would often I will often write about that but um, no there's probably more to do with the well the thesis that I'm writing which is about cultural memory and the idea that our present interacts constantly with the past or ideas that we have of the past but also what interests me is how the media put forward ideas of the past and how they play a big role in how we view our present even down to us individually you know so um so museums interest me a lot and one of the short stories which will be in um a, a spooky by association yeah um which uh, I'm not sure when that's coming out, but this is, yes, it's a lot to do with that because museums today are very different. So they used to be show places before of accumulated objects. 
and now they're really sites where you can interact and there's an interaction between the personal and collective identities and between memory and history and you can go somewhere and you can press buttons and you can you know climb into things and it's all it's very different from how it used to be even 20 years ago when I when I was a child and um, yeah 30 years ago I should say when I was a child so I think our interpretation of history and how that comes forward in a museum is um, is really, really interesting to me. So sometimes I'll explore themes to do with that. And one of my stories is about that actually in Spooky by Association. And then there's another story in horrifiedmagazine.co.uk and it's in a folk horror anthology. And this story is called The Strange Occurrences at Sunnywell Care Home. And I was actually inspired by a talk that was given at Romancing the Gothic uh, by her Twitter name, Anatomical Cat. I don't know her, act, her actual name <laughs> escapes me right now. It's Cat Irving. Cat <clears throat> Irving, thank you. Kat. Yeah. yeah, great talk. Um, a great talk where she mentioned Dipple's oil, and it kind of inspired me to look into that a little bit more and how it was used. And then I started researching on this, and it's a nitrogenous byproduct um, of the destructive distillation of bones. And it was used for a time as a chemical warfare harassing agent during World War II. And so I use this in a story to kind of, again, emphasize that there are really destructive things and events that have happened in the past that sometimes can come back without us even realizing or without us wanting, wanting them to, but they just reappear because memory is a bit like that and it's uncontrollable. And I find that you know no two memories can ever be the same. And I think this overlaps with my idea of food that you can cook the same dish over and over again, but essentially it will never be the same as the last time that you cooked it. <laughs> There's always something slightly different, right? You can't guarantee that it, anything can be ever exactly the same. And it's the same with memory. So for me, the two, these two concepts kind of in overlap. That's really fascinating. Yeah, that's um, and that that's uh, horrified magazine's ebook folk horror yeah. collection has just come out, hasn't it? So that's already available for this month. Yes, from this month. <laughs> so um, yeah, so people can buy it from uh, from now, basically. Um, with your uh, a gothic cookbook, when is that slated to? I mean, I know that's being crowdfunded. Do you have a kind of idea of when? Is it a case of just when you hit all of your pledges? Oh, when we hit all of our pledges, we will have about, yes, it will be about three months from then. And the, so we foresee that if everything goes well, and um, we're nearly at 60%, so that's really exciting. So perhaps by the end of the year, we can reach, you know, we can be fully funded and then it will be out kind of for next year, springtime, perhaps. Um, so we're really, really excited about that. And hopefully people will pledge towards it now that it's spooky season as well. I definitely I pledged the um the gin and tonic one because I, <laughs> I really wanted that one um and I think that was a limited yes I don't know if you've got any others left I think that those all got filled up didn't they that was a, yes a, we have lots of in there <laughs> well done no because yes some are some are limited but um yes we have cocktail booklets and hardbacks signed hardbacks and we have lots of different rewards and we'll be adding some more on after we hit 60%. We'll add on um, a very interesting one based on Rebecca this time. So by Daphne du Maurier. So. Oh, exciting. Yes. Oh, that's really cool. I really hope that people will um, pledge some more because you're so close to getting it 
Yes. Out there, I'm really excited for it. I'm looking Thank forward you. to it. My... It will be the world's first ever Gothic cookbook. So it is very exciting. I'm very proud. Um, and just remind us again where you can um, where you can find that and if you've got any discount codes for it. Yes, so it's unbound.com, a Gothic cookbook, if you look that up and you can pledge there. And we have a special discount code, which is GothicPod10. Is that uh, yeah. P for Parrot, O for Oscar, D for Dog, Gothic Pod? Yeah, Gothic Pod 10, and then it's one zero number. Yeah, cool. perfect. I'll put that in the Thank I'll you. put that in the transcript as well, so people can Great. find it on the blog. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm really excited. I really hope that um, you get a load of pledges, and it does really, really well. I it, really hope so. It's really just such a great idea. Yeah. So do you have anything that you're going to work on after the Gothic? Yes, so I've started um, doing some research into food and romance novels and erotic writing. So we'll see how that develops and what that turns into. Oh, that's really exciting. Is that going to be some modern stuff or are you looking at romance or...? Yeah, I mean, it could be a mixture of the two, something yeah, more traditional romance and then more modern, you know, um, erotic romance um some names that kind of come to mind are for example Lara Kinsey and just other other books that you know have a more modern take on on what romance looks like now, nowadays so yeah so and, and the food that is used in the in those in those books so we'll see oh that's really exciting <laughs> <laughs> thank you for sharing that okay. looking forward to that as well now yes <laughs> Well, thank you very much for coming on and talking about your project and about your fiction and about Gothic food. I'm so, uh, yeah, I'm so happy you could come and do this. Thank you for allowing me to do that because I know it's a bit of a niche topic. So it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, no, you're welcome. Really enjoyed it. And uh, that's all we've got time for. So thank you so much, Ali. And um, we will be back for Thursday and the next installment of 13th. Bye now.